0: Interviewing the leading private equity executives and unlocking the secrets of success. Welcome to the Private Equity Podcast with Alex Rawlings.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Raw Selection Private Equity Podcast. Joining us today is Brian Gordon, founder and chief executive officer of Madison Ventures Plus, a boutique private equity and venture based out of Florida. Welcome, Brian, and thank you very much for sharing your insights. Thank you for having me, Alex. Nice to be here. Absolutely brilliant. So, as in, as is customary Brian, if you could give us a sixty to ninety second breakdown of you, please.
0: Sure. Um was educated in business at the Warden School of the University of Pennsylvania, undergraduate, and then got my MBA at Columbia Business School and headed into the world of risk management consulting thereafter, where I spent three years focusing on how to protect against risk, which has very much informed my investment philosophy. For the rest of my career. Then I went to Wall Street and worked for about a decade in corporate finance and investment banking at Smith Barney and Bear Stearns, mostly focused on real estate, healthcare, and other old economy asset based industries. And then in 1996, I departed and opened my own boutique. Uh, investment firm called Madison, which I am still heading today. 27 years later, Madison has invested in a wide variety of different off the run financial securities and financial instruments, assets and asset pools, and companies, mid market companies and platforms with the focus on trying to find structural arbitrage opportunities that are long-lived, and that present an opportunity for an asymmetric
1: reward versus risk profile. So that's us and me. Well, thank you very much for that. So what's one mistake that you see either private equity firms or portfolio companies making? And what actions would you suggest to correct them? I
0: suppose I see more than just one mistake, but perhaps the uh, the most significant mistake that I see investors making is a focus on the upside first, as opposed to focusing on the downside first, and I think that's very much embedded in the structure of the private equity and venture investing industries. And you know, from an, a fiduciary point of view, I think your first job to your investors is to preserve their capital, and anything that comes after that is all good and so we take the approach of trying to make sure that capital will be defended through cost basis through structure through fundamental research and valuation and due diligence and then let the upside take care of itself and i think that you know the industry particularly with the fact that few investors typically have their own personal wealth or skin in the game and are you know compensated by virtue of typically scaling assets and making profits above some kind of a hurdle that incentivizes people to swing for the fences as opposed to defend the downside. And, um, you know, lots of great ball players got into the Hall of Fame by hitting singles and doubles and not worrying about playing baseball like Babe Ruth. Very good advice.
1: Appreciate that. So... Why do you think that the team element is so important when looking and completing an investment?
0: Well, team is really the, or people are really the core asset in most businesses today. You know, long gone are the days where machinery or other kinds of tangible assets, you know, really create value, like in the days of Henry Ford. And so it's really all about team intellectual capital and execution. Yeah, I think ideas matter. Creative ideas make a difference. But you know, ninety percent I would gauge of uh, real value is created by excellent execution. And that's, you know, all about a leader or a small group of leaders and then a lot of teammates banding together <clears throat> with a cohesive vision, a cohesive passion, and really rowing. The boat in the in the same direction, and that's not easily easily achieved. But I think that most value is created by that sort of operational excellence, and that, of course, all stems from you know the entrepreneurs who you invest with, and or the you know institutional operating partners that you know you bring in to uh, lead and build these enterprises alongside those entrepreneurs.
1: an Based on that, what do you think makes a top executive, you know, a really great member of that leadership team? What's your kind of take on, you know, whether it be three things you look for in those execs, or what's kind of your criteria to to know if you're investing in good people as well as a good business? I think the most important attribute of a top-performer
0: is willfulness, especially in the face of bucking conventional wisdom. You know, my take is that conventional wisdom typically isn't wise; it's just conventional. And that most really good ideas and innovative ideas are bucking some kind of a trend. And you will have lots of doubting Thomases and lots of dark days, you know, implementing your vision and your idea. And that willfulness and stick and belief that this is really something that is possible is perhaps the most critical attribute of a truly, you know, top performer. Ironically, the second attribute I would ascribe to top performance is open-mindedness and a receptivity to opinions and ideas. that come from anywhere, from, you know, the um, person working in the mailroom, you know, all the way to your closest partners and from people and industries that frankly may not seem to have any direct relevance to a particular investment, but there's, you know, a tremendous amount of ideation and, you know, wisdom that can come from keeping an open mind and and open eyes and looking around. And that seems um, at odds with willfulness, but I dare say the best people are, are actually both. Thirdly, you know, I think passion is just critical. It's really hard to be Great at something that you're not that you're not in love with, and so I think that whether that's being a chef or a musician or chief operating officer or what have you or an accountant, it's crucial for you to follow you know follow you hard, and generally the best results will follow from that. you know, I'd certainly give a big assist to work ethic, I think that readiness and hard work do matter and lastly, I'd add that I think it's really important that you You orient your teams and truly, and you know, recruit people and surround yourself with people that think like an owner, which I find really makes a difference in terms of top performance, not only for those people, but for the enterprise that they're serving.
1: You've obviously grown Madison Ventures and led that and established that business a long time ago. I'm sure you've seen many private equity firms come and go, and no doubt many portfolio companies do the same. What advice would you share with? other private equity investors who are growing their private equity firms to kind of stick around to that longevity game and not be that kind of in the pan type scenario, which I'm sure you've seen a few times.
0: Yeah, indeed I have. I think that the first thing that I would, you know, that I would offer is that it's better to be a, a mile deep and an inch wide than the opposite. You know, I find that a lot of people in the private equity and venture space tend to be overly generalized. And while I do believe that good investors and good business executives can operate across borders, I think that some degree of focus is beneficial in terms of everything from execution to deal sourcing to network building on the operating executive side, sourcing capital, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so I think some degree of focus is beneficial Secondly, as we talked about earlier in the show, a real focus on hands-on operational expertise and you know, kind of rolling up your sleeves and getting your hands dirty, and a willingness and an ability to do that, I think, matters. I see too many firms in the investment space who'd focus on ideas and who'd focus on, you know, financial planning and financial engineering. And while I do believe that all of that matters and all of that can Build value, as I said before. You know, the best laid plans to go awry without an execution. I think that planning for risk management is very critical, including including black swan events. Black swans are far more common than commonly believed, and you know they're very difficult to to control for, as we're seeing. At present with a lot of surprise occurring in the banking sector, a lot of surprise as a knock on effect occurring in the venture capital industry broadly. And so, you know, really thinking about what can happen more than one or two standard deviations from the norm, I think is an exercise that's, that's very fruitful. I'd also mention that I think that the industry typically has a full sense of comfort by virtue of control over major major decisions. And I'd argue that while major decision control is indeed important and beneficial from a private equity or venture investing perspective, that it's insufficient in and of itself. And the real control comes from having your finger on the real heartbeat of the business from a data and from an operational lever point of view. And it's hard to do that sitting in a board seat far away from the company, and you know, meeting once a month or once a quarter, really difficult to have true
1: control over over your outcome. So, to interrupt here, just a quick note to highlight our new sponsor, Grata. The private equity market is rapidly shifted to a data driven, proprietary deal sourcing standard. Grata provides the window into over seven million middle market private companies. Contact Grata. So, you can access the market first. Request a demo at www.grata.com. Now, back to the podcast. What I was looking for, the research and background of the firm, um, you know, you've got some impre- pretty impressive uh, returns. We've got, you know, what's it, 25% plus, And I think that's a conservative figure. What are you guys doing that's producing that levels of returns kind of year on year? I think,
0: first of all, we are focusing on, as I said earlier, structural arbitrage opportunities. So opportunities, you know, where there is some kind of an asymmetry between us and the market, which may be created by information. It may be created by embracing operational pain and challenge. It may be by embracing legal or regulatory complexity, by embracing distress. Or bankruptcy, or you know, a whole variety of circumstances, but you know some combination of those factors creates an opportunity to create value on the buy. And you're just way ahead of the game when you can buy something that's worth 100 for less than 100, and ideally, significantly less than 100. And so that's the first thing that, you know creates value for us. Secondly, We tend to focus on not one-off opportunities, but rather repeatable opportunities where the where the opportunity will be repeatable over a period of years as opposed to, you know, a few times. And so that we can get extremely good and develop, you know, all of the operational expertise and due diligence expertise and the network contract and so on and so forth of that niche opportunity and really mine that opportunity. Systematically over a period of time, and then you know just lots of elbow grease to take that advantage that you hopefully acquire on the buy, and then actually add a beekeeping dollop of growth on top of that. And as we've talked about, I think execution is is the key to that. So those are the you know relatively simple philosophies that have guided me and us from an investment point of view since I started. Madison, twenty-seven uh, years ago, and have you know resulted in a pretty you know steady uh, asymmetry between reward and, um, and preservation of capital.
1: That's a very very impressive returns there as well. What do you love about the private equity industry, and equally, what do you dislike about it?
0: I love a lot about it. I've been doing this a long time, and it's as much a passion project as an avocation as it is a vocation. Probably the First thing that I love most about it is working with passionate and creative entrepreneurs who have great ideas and great vision and great knowledge and, you know, various sticks and crannies and, you know, finding meeting and helping to tease out the ones that really have something that is scalable and then working with them to to scale it in an in institutionally robust fashion is really fun and gratifying. You know, it's a combination of a treasure hunt and, you know, mentoring and a lot of other fun fun things. So that's probably the thing I love most. You know, typically we invest in places where other institutional investors are ignoring opportunities. So, you know, we're investing in white space where few choose to tread. And so that in and of itself is isn't adventurous. I guess I tend to be, you know, contrarian by nature and, you know, like to go off the beaten path by nature. So it's fun to have an outlet to do that. Obviously I and we are investing in a lot of different companies, securities, etc. over time. And so there's, you know, something new always learning is I think for most people who are in this field and especially good in this field is something that, you know, is a passion for us. And so that, you know, constant learning curve and diversity is tremendously rewarding. Things move quickly in this world, which I think is fun. You get to see will change visible results relatively quickly for better or for worse. You don't need to sit and watch the grass grow to effectuate change. And for somebody with my personality, at least that's a great deal of fun. And lastly, maybe I'd call out that um, it's very much a team sport as opposed to an individual sport. And getting a group of people to come together, share a vision, share a passion, and row in the same direction, to me, is much more gratifying than you know, being that a lone wolf or an individual contributor. So those are the things I loved about it. The things I dislike about the industry. I think that there can be in some people in quarters the an arrogance and an overconfidence because they, you know, sit in the tier of doling out money and having control over companies. And I think that's typically ill founded and in any event not not a good look and not a good way to, you know, inspire the constituents that you are collaborating with and that you are serving. As I talked about before, I think that there's a misalignment that has been created by compensation structures in the industry, particularly by the fund model. And it causes investors to put capital out, you know, quickly. It causes investors to, you know, focus on, hitting home runs when sometimes a single or a double would be far more pretty. And so I don't care for and subscribe to those traditional models about how to pursue the industry. We've chosen to be a fundless sponsor starting back in 2010 after having been in the fund business for and the, separ- and the you know managed account business for about 15 years before that. And I've found, I've found that the fundless sponsor model is really a better model to align interests between investors, entrepreneurs, and the, you know, the PE or venture shop. And so like that model a lot. And then the last thing that I dislike as I referred to earlier is, you know, the general lack of willingness for people to roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty operationally. I think, you know, the model of sitting on Mount Olympus is not the best way to to control risk and to create value ultimately. Sometimes climbing Mount Olympus on a regular basis is important so that you get above the tree line, so to speak, and can see the big picture. But then I think you need to get back down with your boots on the ground.
1: It's interesting you went back from going or seeing back. You know, obviously we're a fund-based firm and then went to deal-by-deal type process. Did that come with many complications? Was that a simple... You know, simple shift to, to do because most firms go the other way.
0: Yeah. It wasn't complicated and it was relatively simple. And I found it to be a great decision. It's now a more than a decade old decision. And we did it before the term fundless sponsor was even a term. I mean, we had confidence in our ability to source deals, regardless of not having committed capital sitting on the sidelines. And, the Nearly thirty years that I've been doing this, I've never not been able to fund a deal that I wanted to do. So and that, you know, was a testament to good track record and good relationships in the stable of people who trust and like what we're doing. <laughs> and frankly, it empowered them to be able to choose what deal they wanted to invest in and what deal they want to you know, pass on for whatever reason, and took the whole black box of the fund model away, and gave our investors, who are really our you know ultimate constituency, more power in the form of disclosure and transparency. So it's been great, and what it did for us was it gave us the ability to not commingle deals from a performance point of view. Each deal stands on its own. Each deal can be constructed within its SPV. With a capital structure and a business plan and an investment time horizon that's, you know, unique and bespoke to the business and makes sense for that particular business, as opposed to, you know, trying to jam a business into a fund structure where the fund, you know, the fund structure dictates the business plan as opposed to vice versa. So no, it was seamless for us and I've never looked back and don't think I will be anytime soon.
1: Makes sense. Makes sense. So, your influences, what do you read? What do you watch? What do you listen to that you would recommend that others check out?
0: Yeah, I'd say the first thing that I would, that I read a lot about and that I would counsel everybody that wants to be a good investor about is history. Most of what, you know, we experience in the world and as the human condition has already happened countless times before. And you kind of have an unfair advantage if you have seen the movie and you know how the ending goes and that's all contained in in the history books so i am a pretty fond student of history particularly western history and so read a lot about that i of course as you might have guessed by talking about creating value on the buy inherently at heart a value investor and so the great value investors like ram and dodd and more more recently the. Seth Klarman's and Howard Marks and Warren Buffett's are all big influences on me. I certainly think that in order to be a good investor, one needs to be a voracious reader and stay abreast of current events, both business and otherwise. So publications like the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times, are daily reads. But I also think that being a student of Culture and the zeitgeist is critical as well as, you know, it stokes your, you know, sense of creativity, of innovation and what is possible. So I see lots of art, take in lots of films and TV, listen to lots of music, all of which, you know, stimulates the creative side and keeps me closely in tune, I hope, with, you know, what is coming tomorrow as opposed to what happened yesterday. Both are critical perspectives to to being a good, in, good investor. Of my favorite books, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers by Paul Kennedy, The Art of War by Sun Tzu, Seth Glarman's Margin of Safety, and last but not least, let's call out Harold and the Purple Crayon
1: by Crockett Johnson. There's recommendations, a few new things there for me to, to check out as well. If anybody wishes to, to reach out to you, Brian, post this podcast, how best do they uh, get interested?
0: Yeah, they can email me at bgordon and of course, visit our website at
1: So That's all in the show notes. Well, Brian, thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate your insight. Leaves lots of value in different perspectives, private equity professionals, and portfolio executives. So thank you very much for, for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Nice to talk to you, Alex. I appreciate it. You too. And as always, thank you very much for those joining us. And of course, should you ever need any support with private equity professionals or portfolio bunny executive hiring across Europe and North America, please do reach out to us at Raw Selection. And if you have not already, please do subscribe to the podcast and you'll be notified of the next podcast that comes out every two weeks. Until the next time, keep smashing it and thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Private
0: Equity Podcast on www.raw-selection.com.